Hi, this is Two Girls in a Campfire. I'm Sarah. And I'm Allison, and we have a special guest again today. His name is Elliot. Elliot, why don't you tell us about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Elliot Van Dusen, and I'm the Director for Paranormal Phenomena Research and Investigation. It's a nonprofit paranormal investigative organization. Basically, I've been doing this for 24 years, and before Actually, I was doing the paranormal. Then I joined the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and did policing for 15 years and did the paranormal kind of on the side from policing. And then once I retired, I jumped right back into the paranormal doing it full time. Awesome. You have a podcast, right? I do. Uh, we just created one this year. It's called uh, the Dueling Parapsychologist Podcast. Basically how that came about, uh, I've had people over the years tell me that I should start my own podcast and that, you know, the paranormal is really interesting. And uh, same with my colleague, Daryl Walsh. Daryl was kind of really gung-ho to uh, get the pod the podcast going. So uh, where I had somebody motivated uh, like Daryl, uh, we decided to uh, give it a try. We've got uh, two episodes out so far, and we're recording episode three this Sunday. Uh, we'll have a special guest on there that's a demonologist from Rhode Island, so that should be interesting. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. That'll be a good one. All right, Elliot, tell us again the name of the podcast and where people can find it. So it's called the, the Dueling Parapsychologist Podcast. We use anchor.fm to upload it and it goes to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, a few other different smaller ones. But you can, uh, if you go to our website, the PPRI.net, which stands for Paranormal Phenomena Research and Investigation.net, it's got a list of everything there. It's got, you know, who we are, some of our social media accounts. It's got the link to the podcast, got links to mine and Daryl's books. We've both written several ghost books. So pretty much find everything just at that one website. Excellent. All right, Campfire fans, go check out Elliot and all of his social media and paranormal information. So I'm more the true crime person. So would you, maybe your most interesting or favorite case you had when you were working as a policeman? Oh, geez, my most interesting case. Or crazy, whatever. There's been so many. I mean, uh, one of my favorite things, what kind of got me into the paranormal actually was uh, shows like Unsolved Mysteries. It's because I always wanted to be a police officer and I had an interest in homicide. And so Unsolved Mysteries kind of always talked about cold cases and things like that. And then they also had the paranormal aspect to it. So it was a perfect show for me. It was when X-Files came along and you had two law enforcement officers, you know, from the FBI investigating paranormal. Um, that kind of got me interested in the investigative side. So I ended up taking some formal courses uh, in parapsychology and then joined a uh, Daryl Walsh's uh, research group at the time it was called the Center for Parapsychological Studies in Canada to do some field investigations there. And then I ended up creating uh, my own paranormal phenomena research investigation. One of the most interesting cases, it had a lot of like weird coincidences to it, but it was a murder investigation actually of uh, an older indigenous lady. She was a homeless person. And uh, her body was found in the alleyway up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories. For six months, we interviewed everybody and followed the major case management protocol, which is kind of what we follow. It's, a, it's kind of a process that you do uh, homicide investigations with. And I kind of call it a circle. So eventually, you kind of know when you're almost done your homicide investigation because you start kind of circling back to the same people. So you'll go out and interview John Doe and then Jane Doe. And then, if, you know, Jane Doe might say, oh, did you speak to John Doe? Yeah, we already spoke to him. So when you start talking to all the different people and they start kind of referring you back to the same people, I kind of call that like coming to the conclusion of the circle. Normally, in a typical homicide investigation, by the time you start closing out that circle, you've kind of collected everything that you possibly can. And normally by that point, you have a suspect. But at this point, the investigation had gone on for six months and we had no suspects at all. And we even went around and ran like license plates at the motels because Yellowknife is uh, far north in Canada. It's in the subarctic. So you don't get a whole lot of, you know, it's very transient, I guess. You don't get a whole lot of permanent people there. People are always coming and going for work and visits and things like that. So ironically, one of the license plates that we had run that night during one of these nights came back to a guy that had been convicted of a murder. And so we looked up the file and who he was and, you know, just in case he was a suspect. They actually teach about him on the major crime course. There was a homicide file. 
where they did uh, undercover operation. And this guy led the police into the woods and basically showed them where his sister's body was buried. And he didn't know that person he was leading into the woods was actually a police officer. You know, once they left, they called out a forensic team and they dug up the area where he said his sister was. And sure enough, they found remains. And when they ran it through the lab, it came back. The DNA tested positive for his sister. So then they placed this guy under arrest and, you know, he went, he went to jail and he did his time and he got released. And then years later, we're investigating a murder up in Yellowknife and this guy's license plate shows up here. Turns out he had an alibi, so it wasn't him, but it was just one of those weird coincidences. Like I had been on, you know, this course and they actually taught about this guy. And then here's this guy is up in Yellowknife and we have an unsolved murder. Anyway, after six months, what happened is... We sent the DNA off to the lab that we found on the, the murder victim, and we got a hit on, on who the suspect was. We decided to do a minor undercover operation as well by placing somebody in cells and doing a targeted arrest. So we went and arrested the suspect. You know, he ended up confessing to the person in cells and also in the interview to the investigators, and we were able to, to kind of close that case. But it was such a strange feeling for me because I had done by that point, I want to say at least 20 homicides. We've either always had a suspect or you find out who the suspect is like within a day or two or the first 48 hours, as they say. And, um, you know, this was just one of those ones where like for six months, we had no idea who had killed this, this lady. And uh, she was a senior indigenous person and like I said, homeless and addicted to, uh, you know, substances. And it was, a, it was a sad case, but it was, like I said, probably one of the more interesting homicide ones that I had investigated with, like, a lot of weird coincidences in it. I love that. Sarah, I should have been a freaking detective. <laughs> I'm about to change my job now that I'm about to graduate nursing school. I'm doing it for done. You're never too late. They're always, you know, that's the thing about law enforcement is they like a variety of experience. Uh, you know, a lot of people back in the day used to get turned down when they were 19 years old just because they didn't have life experience, they call it. There's actually quite a few people that join after they've already done their primary career. Like we have a lot of, it seems a lot of teachers switch over to be police officers and also a lot of hockey players when they're done playing minor pro or anything like that. So, I mean, it's, it's never, it's never too late to switch. I don't know what it would be down in the States, but I know up here, like it seems to be a lot of, a lot of hockey players. I, I work with a guy down in flat. He was drafted in 2005, the same year as Sidney Crosby. He was the third round draft pick for the New York Rangers, which happened to be my favorite team at the time. So Dallin and I got along great. My cousin, actually, uh, he's a police officer with the Halifax Police. He was drafted by the Buffalo Sabres. He played over in Europe, pro hockey. So there's definitely a lot of uh, what I found, like hockey players and teachers that ended up switching over to do policing. I think in the States, it's all the old actors like Steven Seagal. You can get arrested by Steven Seagal down in like Louisiana. I saw that. I saw that he was doing policing. Yeah. So look, Al, it's never too late. Like you could take your nursing experience and go work in a prison. There you go. I could do both. I'll be a nurse. Well, I used to work at a jail when I was like 21 and I would spend my shift just reading police reports. Oh, yes. So I could do that again too as a nurse. I'll just sit around and just read them because that's awesome. That that is awesome. Yeah, yeah. There's um like lots of nurses that work in the jails and stuff like that. And I mean, there's lots of reports too of haunted prisons. Um, in a couple of my books, uh, the one that I wrote, Supernatural Encounters, True Paranormal Accounts from Law Enforcement, uh, had a couple of jail stories there and courthouses. And then in my new uh, book as well, that's coming out in the fall, more Supernatural Encounters from Law Enforcement. It has a couple more um, haunted jails. There's one in Detroit. Uh, the, the old sixth precinct uh, was purchased by a gentleman to turn it into like a computer data center but he I don't think he actually went through and did that yet he's kind of like restoring the building and they allow people to come in and do ghost hunts and things like that so I don't know if he'll end up doing the data center thing or if he'll just kind of do like a ghost tourism kind of thing but yeah certainly jails and prisons and, and things like that are known for uh, the supernatural. So this is a really good segue. Was there ever a case that you were on or something that you were investigating that, you know, your police work and your paranormal work intersect, you know, intersected in the middle of like an investigation? Uh, I can ask that occasionally, but there, there was actually nothing that I came across while on duty that I would consider supernatural. I worked in some cool spots that had like some supernatural links to it. Uh, my first posting was Penticton, British Columbia, 
which is the southernmost part of Lake Okanagan, which is home to uh, the lake monster Ogopogo. Many night shifts and would patrol around the lake in different areas where the monster had been reported before. But I mean, I had never seen anything or come across anything or even met anyone that had personally witnessed the, you know, Ogopogo. And then from there, I went up to uh, Yellowknife. And when I was in Yellowknife, there was a small community about 350 kilometers outside of Yellowknife. It was a fly-in only community. And they believe in a Bigfoot. Uh, they call it the Bushman, but it's kind of a Bigfoot Sasquatch type creature. Um, that's responsible for missing bush camp workers and missing children. They would always blame blame them on the Bigfoot on that. And then while I was up there as well, it was, uh, I think, 2008, if I recall, um, there was a UFO sighting in another flying community called Delaney. Three RCMP officers witnessed it along with the entire town. They actually flew the RCMP officers the next day to RCMP headquarters in Yellowknife not our national headquarters, but the headquarters for the, the territory, because we have territory and provinces in Canada, and you guys have states. They flew them in and interviewed them, and they actually sent a CSIS agent, which stands for Canadian Security Intelligence Service agent, up to also do some investigating and stuff like that. So that would be like sending the CIA to a UFO sighting. So, you know, they took it, they took it pretty seriously uh, when I was up there, and I just kind of saw, like I said, the people being flown in and interviewed and and I actually talked to uh, one of the investigators and uh, the story's going to be in my uh, upcoming book here. He gave me the, the full details on it, which was kind of cool. You know, like one of the RCMP officers that witnessed it was also a semi-professional or had an interest in photography. Uh, another guy had, I think, previous military experience and had knowledge of aircraft. And he was, you know, saying that this object was nothing conventional that he's ever seen. So it was, you know, it was a pretty cool UFO sighting. Then I transferred uh, back to my home province where we're podcasting from right now. Uh, in Nova Scotia, I got posted to a little community called uh, Chester, and Chester has been known for a few different ghost stories. There's apparently a headless nun that walks on Highway Three uh, late at night, and I used to patrol that all the time, looking, you know, looking to see if I saw anything unusual, but never had the opportunity to come across that. And then uh, there's also a ghost ship uh, called Teaser that would show up in the uh, the ocean, and again, I would do you know, multiple patrols around the waterfront and never saw anything suspicious or anything like that. Then I got promoted downtown Halifax and then uh, retired a couple of years later. So it, yeah, it's, it's cool. I've always been in like communities that have had like a history, but I've never come across anything supernatural while I was on duty. And and what did your, uh, what did your fellow, poli- you're not policemen, what are you? Yeah. Are you policemen? Okay. <laughs> what, what did your fellow policemen think about your extracurricular activities? They were not too friendly about it. (laughs) Uh, I I actually make mention of it, I think, in pretty much all three of my books, I think. So one of the nicknames, uh, my my friend Daryl Walsh, that's also my colleague there, um, he had wrote the foreword for Supernatural Encounters. He talks about that I'm the equivalent of Canada's Fox Mulder. I've got, you know, the major crime background and, you know, Fox Mulder had the behavioral science background and paranormal background and all that so much like fox Mulder, um i often received a lot of ridicule from uh people in the police force people would post uh ghostbuster proton packs on my locker and like i called into the office one time and one of the staff sergeants and a corporal were like just tearing me up like this you know they wanted me to write a letter to um, our departmental security department to make sure that it was told them all that in my interview because one of the questions they ask you in your interview is you know are you part of any clubs or organizations so anyways they made me write this letter and you know it turns out today and if I had known at the time I was only you know brand new on the police force I had like six months service so I didn't want to cause any waves I mean today that would be considered harassment in the workplace but at the time I didn't know that anyways I, I wrote to them and they wrote back and they said yeah we already know all this like the guy already told us all this in the interview like why are you contacting us basically and uh, I told them because I was kind of I was kind of angry about it you know what I mean but again I didn't want to cause waves because I was brand new but I said to them I was like you do realize that like our organization used to actually investigate UFO sightings and they said well what do you mean and when I went to university I met with a ufologist his name's Chris Stiles he wrote a couple books on the Shag Harbor uh, UFO crash and he had told me that back in the day in the 70s 80s the RCMP used to investigate UFO sightings and they would actually send their reports to one of the professors at St. Mary's University. He was uh, a doctor in charge of the astronomy department. 
father, Burke Gaffney. So Burke Gaffney had an interest in UFOs and also uh, demonology and things like that. When he would get the RCMP reports, he would kind of give them his two cents and he would look at all the astronomical events that were occurring at the time and, you know, tell them if there was anything going on. He told me that all those files are kept at the university archives and where I was a student, I could access them. So sure enough, I went back to the university, looked, went to the library archives, looked up the files, found, I want to say close to 200 pages of UFO sightings and reports and stuff. So I took a copy of them and, you know, the staff sergeant and the corporal that I was speaking to had no idea that the RCMP used to actually formally investigate those. And it was taken quite seriously. Like if you got a UFO sighting, you had to investigate it right away. And you had to contact the Department of National Defense before you went off shift, because in some of the reports, some of the members worked their 12 hour shift. They were probably tired. They just wanted to get home, figured, you know, as soon as I get back on shift, I'll do the follow up paperwork. There was notes on the file that I had read where they got in so much trouble because policy said you had to contact DND right away. And there was no no way around it. Like, and uh, so it was, it was very, you know, very interesting. So it was after a couple of incidents like that, I decided, you know what, I'm going to kind of do the paranormal on the side quietly. I'll still read it and keep up on studies and still take courses and things like that. But publicly, obviously this is not accepted in the policing environment that I was in. So I decided to kind of keep it quiet uh, until probably the last two years when I kind of made a decision that I was going to retire soon. I, I kind of stopped caring at that point, you know, because I knew I was getting close to being done. And, and uh, at that point, I started, you know, doing some lectures around the city of Halifax and things like that and kind of becoming more public. That's phenomenal. I, I really I appreciate that you were able to just grow through that. And now you are on this whole new pathway and you're a published author. You're crushing it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, most most people generally find this stuff interesting and fascinating. I don't know. I don't know what it was about some of the people I work with, but yeah, sometimes people need to see things, I guess, to believe it. Absolutely. But then you always get those people that even when they see it, they're just going to tell you it wasn't anything anyways. (laughs) No, that's true. Actually, Um, there's a few, you know, people that I've interviewed for my books and they say flat out, they say like, I don't believe in the paranormal or supernatural, but this is what I saw and I can't really explain it, but I don't know what it is. Like, it's almost like they, even though they're describing a supernatural event, they can't come to terms with, with it being, you know, a supernatural or unknown. Our tiny human brains can only process so much. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So, so can you kind of explain, so you do investigative work now with supernatural? Research and investigations. Yep. You have anything interesting you're researching right now? Well, right now we have an ongoing uh, phenomenological project. So what we're doing is we're collecting all tales of the supernatural from all across Canada and all across the United States. And it could be a mix of UFO sightings, ghost sightings, cryptozoology, you know, demons, anything that falls under the realm of supernatural. We're collecting people's stories and then we're kind of analyzing it and breaking it down. So we're classifying what the phenomena is. So, you know, is it a UFO sighting? Is it a haunting? Is it a residual haunting? The location, uh, what the weather was like at the time, uh, the time of day, all that stuff. And we're kind of breaking down the story and we're going to input it into an electronic database. So my co-founder of PPRI is actually a web developer, uh, Spencer Collier. So he's currently working on a database um, so that we can upload all that data to it. And then if you're interested in, you know, finding out, you know, what does PPRI know about the state of Texas or what do they know about the province of Nova Scotia? You can pull it up on the map and you can kind of see uh, where some supernatural events have happened. Maybe there's some hot spots. Maybe there's some stories you didn't know of. We'll try and give, you know, as much detail as possible. You know, I know some places are hard to find. For example, I, I've been to North Kingston, Rhode Island, looking for the devil's footprints, and I only found them in the woods because somebody uh, had posted on the internet the actual GPS coordinates. So once we punched that in, we knew the general area, but once we punched in the coordinates, we actually found the devil's footprints, the alleged devil's footprints. You know, we're hoping to do something like that. It's going to take us a little bit of time, obviously, to, to kind of develop that. But we'll also have it set up so that anyone can come to the website and input their story in the same data, but then it will go to one of my investigators who we can then redact stuff. So if you didn't want your phone number there or your house address we can just say private residence in the city of Halifax or whatever you know kind of narrow it down um, so that we don't uh, you know so that we protect the confidentiality basically Um, that's that's one research project that we're working on right now 
That's pretty, that's a pretty huge undertaking. That's phenomenal. Yeah, it's something I've wanted to do for many years. Um, and we just kind of never got around to it. I mean, there are a few different websites. I've seen a few UFO maps um, that you can go to. And uh, there is one website, I think it's actually called paranormaldatabase.com. But it doesn't really map it out. It just kind of you can punch in the city. It's mostly UK stuff. So uh, anything in the United Kingdom, you can punch in like the borough or the town or the city and kind of see what they know about it. But uh, yeah, we kind of want to make it like similar to that, but also interactive with a map and, you know, easy to print off. You can maybe click a button. It'll turn into Adobe document. You can print it off for your own reference, things like that. So yeah, it's definitely a work in progress, but I think it'll be really cool and and beneficial to to people uh, once it's up and running. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people are super interested in the paranormal, all the things that we don't understand we're interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Now is your, now could I reach out to your investigative research team and be like, Hey, my house is haunted. I need some help. Yeah. So on our website, we have a contact form and uh, we do, we do get inquiries. Uh, the last one that we got was, I think it was to look at a, a ghost photo, I think. So this lady had gone to the Fortress of Lewisburg, which is a historic property uh, in Cape Breton Island here in Nova Scotia. It was her 50th birthday. She spent the day at the fortress uh, with her husband and a couple of small family members. They had a great time. Closing time, they decided to leave the fortress and go over to the lighthouse. And uh, they were there. They were just taking pictures, having fun. Then all of a sudden, she saw a bagpiper coming up towards the uh, lighthouse. And she thought it was a really iconic kind of shot to capture so she took a few pictures of that and then she realized that a wedding party was kind of tailing behind so she didn't want to photobomb the wedding party so they decided to pack up and go later that night around midnight uh, she was going to post some photos from her day on Facebook and just thank everyone that had come uh, for you know spending her birthday with her and when she was looking at the photos of the bagpiper um, she could see a picture of the bagpiper standing next to the lighthouse and he was there by himself and then in another photo you can kind of see something like popping up behind the rock or kind of materializing behind one of the rocks and then in the third photo you can clearly see like this girl wearing like this old and looked like an 1800s dress uh that was wearing like kind of a green color the lady swears up and down i asked her multiple different times like she swears she only ever saw the bagpiper and there was nobody else there and so anyway i had the photo analyzed and uh it turns out that the photo was not altered at all all the uh red blue greens and all the pixels and all that stuff matched so it wasn't digitally altered in fact the person that analyzed it for me their comments were if i didn't know better i would think that this is a real person in the photo and uh, that's kind of what i suspect so my th- i mean it's one of two things we know it's not a fake photo so it's either probably one of the best ghost photos you'll ever see or uh it's a real person there and the lady was just so focused on capturing a picture of the bagpiper and not ruining the wedding that she kind of had tunnel vision and didn't see the girl pop up um so right now we're in the process of trying to track down who that bagpiper is i've actually got a list of somebody said it might have been one bagpiper i contacted him it's not but Throughout the course of the investigation, I have about four more names that have been given to me. I guess it's kind of a small community. You know, the bagpipers kind of all know who they are and they wear different um, regalia and things like that. So they can kind of like identify who it is. So I'm kind of in the process of tracking that guy down. I mean, we may very well speak to him and he says, oh, yeah, that's my daughter. And she must have just gotten away the photo or whatnot. Right. That's that's probably the last kind of thing we looked into. And that was just within the last couple months. That's pretty cool. It is cool. Um, I mean, back in the day when you would get those things emailed to you, like electronic voice phenomena and photos and things like that, they kind of carried a little bit more weight. But I always caution like today with uh, digital technology, um, even before I retired from the police, the technological crime unit was having trouble deciphering what was real uh, when it came to digital evidence, because I mean, there's just so many things now. There's the deep fake technology. I'm not sure if you guys have seen the video of Tom Cruise talking and it's not actually um, not actually uh, Tom Cruise. It's like a deep fake kind of technology that can just take a clip of his voice and kind of continue to make, they can make his mouth move. And there's just all kinds of different crazy technology out there now that when somebody sends you a video or a photograph, like unless you or one of your investigative members are there to see it, it almost doesn't hold any weight anymore. 
All right, I have not seen the creepy Tom Cruise, but <laughs> yeah, it's 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 out there and it's uh it, it's really interesting. I feel like honestly, you can't believe anything you see on the internet. Like I really believe that because I have seen like five year olds that can Photoshop, and I don't know how to do that, and they like make this really amazing picture. I imagine that would be a really difficult aspect of the investigation part of your job. Yeah, it is. Like I mean, I mean, we'll take a look at at stuff if people send it to us but it's hard for us to make like i i doubt that we would make like a definitive answer and say yeah that's you know that's a ghost or that's a ufo or whatever right um you just need further investigation unfortunately so you were saying that unless you had taken the picture you don't put too much stock in it so do you go out and do investigations like on location we do. We're more of a reactive organization. So uh, we're not one of those organizations that goes to the graveyard and uh, or hits up like the local museum or anything like that. We mostly wait for people to to come to us or, you know, if it if you were like at a, for example, uh, Daryl Walsh was at a bar talking to one of the bartenders and told them who he was. And, you know, they said, oh, well, our place is haunted. And, you know, the servers here, glass breaking and there's nothing found and uh, silverware goes missing and things like that. You guys are more than welcome to come and investigate. So if it's kind of an invite like that, uh, we'll take them up on it. But yeah, we don't, we don't go out and seek it a whole lot, but we do we do do investigations. We have a whole gam of equipment. Uh, we just purchased a whole bunch of new stuff. We have a brand new uh, EMF reader that actually records all the data on a memory card and you can upload it to your computer later. So you're not going around with a notebook anymore, going into each room, trying to write down what the EMF reader said at what time, because now it's all digitally captured and it'll just upload it to a spreadsheet for you later. We have a FLIR, the forward infrared uh, looking camera, which detects heat signatures, which is really cool. Like if you put your hand on the wall and then point the FLIR at it, you'll actually see your handprint on the wall because it's taking the heat from your body and capturing it on the on the camera. We also just bought a, a four different uh, type of uh, gas detector. It uh, There's been a few studies that have come out recently saying that carbon monoxide can cause people to experience haunting characteristics. There was a case in 1921 where uh, people were feeling um, be- that they were being watched, they were hearing footsteps, just like kind of your typical haunting characteristics. When they came in to investigate, they found that their furnace was leaking uh, excessive amounts of carbon, di- uh, carbon monoxide, sorry, and that was causing them to uh, experience the haunting uh, characteristics. There was another case recently, in t- well, I say recently, but in 2005, where a lady was in the shower and she actually thought she saw an apparition. She called for help. They came over. People were feeling ill in the house and things like that. They ended up finding out it was her new gas water heater that had just been installed, was installed improperly, and it was giving off excessive uh, amounts of carbon monoxide. So um, we bought this gas detector, which can detect oxygen, carbon monoxide. It can also detect H2S gas, which has a sulfuric smell. Mostly oil rig workers uh, have to take the the special course to recognize it. But that would be perfect for like a dynamic haunting um, kind of situation. And then um, it detects uh, low level explosive gases. But uh, I mean, I'm more interested in the the monoxide and and the H2S gas for sure. So yeah, we've, we've got a whole array of equipment. We've got Nest cameras we can set up, which will send video right to a cell phone. So, you know, uh, you can kind of set up a home base, uh, you know, in somebody's living room and not even have to worry about going around and checking cameras and battery levels and all that stuff because they plug into the wall. So I uh, certainly have all the tools uh, and uh, just just need some cases to come in. It's been fairly quiet, I find, with COVID. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys have experienced that, but it doesn't seem like a whole lot of people are, and I've talked to other people in the field too, and it's the same thing, you know, like unless you're proactively going out to, you know, these museums and things like that and trying to, trying to get an investigation on the go, it doesn't seem that many people are contacting people for paranormal investigation right now that's interesting you would think if people were hanging out in their houses more often that restless spirits would be more active like get out of here go away well and and there was a news article which said that it said that you know people were reporting more haunted houses but i don't know um we just haven't seen it here in nova scotia anyway so elliot mike i'm wondering kind of you've been involved in this for a really long time this has obviously been a huge part of your life and it's an interest and a hobby and now a career kind of what's your end game here like are you just hoping to learn more about the paranormal is there 
you know, kind of where does this go for you from here? It's really, that's really interesting question to ask. Um, I guess. uh, It was not on the list of approved questions from Allison. Sorry. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's uh, it's really good, uh, you know, because I often ask myself the same thing like you know why why do I continue to do this so certainly you're not in in this field to make money a lot of people that investigate the paranormal uh, have jobs at universities and they kind of do this at the side of their desk they're psychologists or psychiatrists or scientists and you know they just kind of have an interest in it and they have to do it outside of their desk because you know they work another job or um, you know even Lloyd Auerbach who's a you know famous parapsychologist from the west coast I mean he works a, a regular job as well right so I'm just fortunate enough that where I retire with the police, I have a pension. So it's almost like when Stanton Friedman was doing all his UFO stuff, he had a pension from being a nuclear physicist and he could afford to, you know, travel around and do his UFO thing. But for me, I I like to help people, um, especially with things they don't understand. So, you know, we helped one lady this year. Um, She contacted us. She thought, she had either a dynamic haunting or a really bad haunting. And, uh, you know, we investigated it uh, very thoroughly, even though it was outside of our area, the, um, kind of the southwestern part of the United States. We only do uh, the New England prov- uh, states and uh, Atlantic Can- uh, Canadian provinces. So it was outside our area, but I wanted to take the case on because she needed help. And I also wanted to get some of our newer investigators some experience in interviewing people and things like that. So we interviewed a bunch of witnesses that she had and uh, wrote up her reports and analyzed all her photographs and her videos that she sent us. At the end of the day, I think that if anything paranormal was happening, uh, I think it was um, what I would call psychokinesis. It appeared to be mind matter interaction, things that she may have been causing in the environment. The other thing that kind of popped up through the course of the investigation as well was uh, there was uh, some medical um, that kind of caused us to have some red flags kind of thing. And so what we did is we um, recommended her to, uh, it's a kind of a new and upcoming trend in the field of parapsychology, but it's called a clinical parapsychologist. And uh, what a clinical parapsychologist is, is they're either a psychologist or a psychologist basically are practicing and they counsel people, but they also have a background in parapsychology. So they can help people with, uh, you know, the supernatural and trying to help them understand it and help them work through it as well. Because sometimes when you're involved in in a haunting investigation, it it can be kind of traumatic, you know, especially if you're undergoing like things like disappearing on you all the time or things breaking and it it can be stressful, right? So it can cause anxiety and, and mental health conditions. So these people are trained, you know, to deal with mental health, but also have an understanding of the paranormal. So, you know, that was a great example of, uh, of a case that we were able to work and help and uh, you know hopefully obviously once I pass the client off to the clinical parapsychologist uh, I don't get updated because of patient and confidentiality but um, you know I I assume that it's helped her and and uh, that's what we're here to do the other thing I like to do uh, as well why I do this is the education aspect of it as well there's a lot of myths and misconceptions and things like that in the field so I like to you know, uh, bring the latest studies that I've learned about or just came off a recent course and talk about, you know, the new technology or what's real, what's not real. You know, for example, like one thing that we all see on TV are ghost hunters investigating in the dark. And what we know from Eleanor Sedgwick, who was a member of the Society for Psychical Research, she did a phenomenological project on hauntings. And she tore all those haunting cases apart and analyzed them. And at the end of the day, what she realized is that a ghost can show up at any day, any time, day, night, inside, outside, during rain, during sunshine. And that basically the only reason we should be investigating ghosts in the dark is if the client says, you know, something supernatural only happens in this room when the lights are turned out. And other than that, it's done on TV for dramatics, which is just not not realistic. It's all very Blair Witchy, <laughs> the, the reality paranormal shows. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And um, I mean, I can see why they do it, obviously. Like they want to make it scary and kind of dramatic and entertaining and things like that. But I mean, there are some people that watch that and think that that's how it's it's supposed to be done. It's not. Well, and it's always so funny because they'll be like, oh, we saw this tonight. We don't know what it was. Okay, well, we're leaving. So we'll see you later. And you're like, but if you really saw something, wouldn't you want to stay another night or, you know? So has it ever, has it ever gotten really intense like that though? Like for you, have you ever had a, a case where it really, you kind of walked away from it going, wow, that was, 
that was one of those real genuine experiences. Well, yeah, my uh, my first book, which is called Evil in Exeter, um, was definitely an eye opener. It was probably uh, one of the most haunted houses that I've ever investigated. Um, I met a girl on Instagram one time. Uh, she had posted a photo where she looked like Dana Scully. So I had just commented on it saying that, uh, you know, you look like Jillian Anderson in this photograph. And we got private messaging each other. And, you know, I told her, you know, I was a police officer in Canada and a paranormal investigator. And she told me that, you know, she's been around hauntings her whole life, uh, that she was on the television show, um, uh, Ghost Hunters, I think. Is that the one Taps did? I think it's ghost hunters and so sure enough i found the episode uh online and i watched it and her story actually matched up to exactly what she told me and and whatnot so um i was single at the time so i decided to fly down to rhode island and i rent a hotel and i meet up with her and did that and she showed me around rhode island i got to see you know some really cool sites i got to see mercy brown who they believe was a vampire uh in exeter rhode island got to see her grave I uh, got to see the real conjuring house. I uh, got to see um, the house, uh, the Snedeker house, which uh, is based off of uh, haunting in Connecticut. It's the old uh, funeral parlor home. Um, so I got to see some really cool things while I was down there. So I went back to Canada. We continued to talk. And uh, the next time I went down, she said, you can stay at my house, but I'm just warning you, like every time um, I have a guy over the house, it seems like activity picks up and and I didn't think anything of it because I was a police officer and a paranormal investigator. And, you know, I'd seen, you know, a few different supernatural things before. So I wasn't, wasn't too worried about it. But sure enough, as soon as I go down there, you know, all kinds of bizarre things started happening. There was uh, electronics being manipulated on their own, uh, kids' toys being manipulated on their own, doors opening, closing, locking and unlocking on their own. Um, I heard three distinct footsteps approach um, me and the homeowner uh, at one point. Their, uh, her kids didn't sleep for like four or five days and kept saying that they heard scratching come from their walls. And I went outside to make sure like it wasn't a tree branch hitting the window. Almost like in Amityville, there was uh, hundreds of these house flies that would just show up out of nowhere. We had to go buy those like fly strips. And within like minutes, they'd be covered in like 30, 40 flies. The fire alarms went off. Actually that week, things were so bad. We went to uh, one of the Catholic church churches and got holy water. And later that night at 1.30 in the morning, the fire alarm started to go off on their own. And uh, it was the type of alarm where if one goes off, they all go off. And uh, the only way that they would turn off is if you splashed it with holy water. And even then, only that one individual alarm would go off. So we had to go around to each, each uh, different uh, fire alarm and turn it off manually. Another time I was in the room doing a house blessing in the little boy's room and um, somebody started to open the doorknob and it turned three fourths of the way. And it was only me and the homeowner at home at the time. And she was downstairs. So I went over to the door and like opened it up and there was nobody else behind it, but I actually saw the doorknob turn like three fourths of the way. And uh, things got so bad. Um, we ended up contacting the family's uh, priest um, who actually used to be an exorcist. He did deliverance work, which is the Catholic church's uh, proper term for exorcism type work. His name's Father Bob Bailey. He's been on a few different paranormal shows as well, but uh, unfortunately he had been reassigned at the time, um, so he wasn't doing deliverance work. So he'd sent us some prayers from uh, the Roman ritual. We ended up having to contact a psychic that we trusted. Um, she came in and she had a mix of sage and herbs and things like that. She was non-denominational, so she was talking to whoever she talked to or higher powers and doing her prayers and things like that. And we were upstairs in the bedroom she was on the opposite side of the master bed. Me and the homeowner were standing next to each other and we could both feel like this really cold presence in between us. And I had the flur at the time, so pointed it toward where we felt the cold spot, but there was no change in temperature on the on the equipment, which is actually very common in the paranormal. It's people report sensations of cold or hot spots, but the equipment doesn't necessarily pick it up. Anyway, all of a sudden, we can kind of see these distorted footprints that were dark in color uh, appear across the bed comforter and right in the middle of the bed was where the um, sage and things were burning so you could see the pie plate and it was smoking hot on the on the floor because it's picking up the heat signature but all around it you could see these dark distorted like footprints appear on the bed and kind of like go around the pie plate and over towards the medium and we didn't tell her that we were seeing this on the floor and we no sooner saw it on the floor and she says i kind of feel like the presence is over by me now which was interesting and then uh, she said that the michael the archangel prayer and then she told us that she felt like 
the entity had uh, dissipated. The The footprints on the bed cover had disappeared at that point. And me and the homeowner kind of looked at each other and we said like, well, we don't feel any different. And, you know, it doesn't feel like anything's changed. And then the medium explained that, you know, when she forces something to move out or asks it to move out, you know, the walls don't cave in and the windows don't blow out. And it's not like uh, the TV shows and the movies. And anyways, whatever... Whatever happened in that case, uh, there has been very little activity at the house ever since then, and that would have been November of 2018, I think. It was uh, it was a lot to endure every time I went down, because when I went down, I'd go down for anywhere's two to three weeks. And I know when I got back to Canada, it, uh, it always felt like a relief to kind of be away from the activity for a little bit. So I can sympathize with people that may need to speak to a clinical parapsychologist about, you know, ongoing, you know, if they're in a haunted house and it's ongoing because it, uh, it does take a toll on you. Uh, yeah. See, this is, I'm not cut out for this kind of work. Cause I'd be like, I'll be at the hotel. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the night of the fire alarm, we actually, uh, we had to leave the house. So we, um, the homeowner did not want to stay there anymore. So once we got the fire alarms all turned off with the holy water, uh, I set my phone up on a voice recorder and left it at the top of the stairs thinking that that was the best spot because you would kind of get a bit of upstairs a bit off downstairs and uh we actually had to leave that night we actually talked about possibly getting a hotel but we went out and drove around for a couple hours and um when we came home the next day i listened to the audio recording and uh the only the alarms never went off ever again after we left the house and the only thing you could hear on the recording were uh, six bangs that happened over the span of an hour, hour and a half after we vacated the house. You could just hear like this really loud, like pound, pound sound, like almost like somebody like hit the wall. And uh, that was it though. The alarms never, never went off again. We called Kitty the next day, which is the brand of fire alarm. And they had no explanation for it. And they actually mailed out a couple different new alarms to install, but uh, they basically had no explanation for why they would go off like that and why they would only turn off when holy water hit it <laughs> so you does this person still own the home yeah and it's not an old home. it's not an old home it's actually um built in a fairly new subdivision now it does does reside next to uh, a graveyard um where there are the bodies from the uh it was a kind of a mental institution back in the day and so anyone that passed away from there uh they would uh they would bury the the bodies there. So there are graves there. But other than that, uh, yeah, it's a fairly new house, fairly new subdivision. That's so interesting. Before I moved to Tennessee, I didn't realize that, well, because we're from San Diego, so it's a big city. But Tennessee, like, you'll be driving by a house and then they'll just be like a little tiny family cemetery. And then they're just like all over. Yeah, I would even bury the dog in the backyard. <laughs> like, yeah, it's uh, it is it is interesting. Um, now, one thing they do find is that there's not a whole lot of haunted graveyards. There are stories of people seeing ghosts in graveyards, but it's actually not one of the more common spots. Um, you know, because that's usually the the people have haven't died there, and uh, you know that's just the final resting place for the capsule or the body. Yeah, there's there's not a whole lot of ghosts roaming around graveyards. I mean, there are like I said, a few stories. In fact, one. That I mentioned in Supernatural Encounters, uh, I found it through the Conventry, Rhode Island Police Department's Facebook website. So when I was down in Rhode Island, I saw a Facebook post circulating on the internet, and it was from the police department. And they said that they had attended, they got a call later, earlier that night, sorry, that there was a lady in a white dress running down the street screaming her head off. And so people phoned in thinking that the girl needed help. He sent two police officers out there to take a look they couldn't find anybody and so they posted on Facebook it was early October so it was like October 5th or so so I mean it was the month of Halloween but they had posted it and they weren't joking they you know they said um, listen we got a call last night this was the circumstances if anyone has any information please contact us but then they said interestingly enough it was near the graveyard where people have reported the ghost of Nellie Vaughn and Nellie Vaughn is another one that they accused of being a vampire and apparently she wanders around saying that she's uh, pleasantly perfect and that she's not a vampire. And some people that go um, into the graveyard have reported getting scratched and pushed and things like that. So we went out to the graveyard the next day. And the only weird thing that happened was it was a beautiful sunny day. Uh, there was no rain, no moisture. And we're about three minutes out from the graveyard and the windshield wipers on 
the SUV started going for no reason. And we actually had to turn, turn them off because it was on auto. And, you know, sometimes on auto, it may detect moisture and start moving. But again, this was like a completely dry day. Turn the windshield wipers off. They were still going and they didn't stop until we pulled into the graveyard. When we pulled in the graveyard and stopped, that's when the wipers turned off. So we got out we you know, took a look around the graveyard. Unfortunately with Nellie, um, her, somebody stole her tombstone. So the exact spot of where she was is hard to find. They never replaced it. And um, you can't really see like a broken headstone. So there was an old, old YouTube video of somebody that had been there when her tombstone was still there. So we kind of knew the general area, but we weren't like hundred percent sure, but anyway, we checked it out and we didn't see anything, but I thought it was really, uh, you know, that was a really interesting story that the police would, you know, actually mention it because they said that they get reports of a lady in white near that area all the time and they never find anything. So that's an example of a haunted graveyard. It's so interesting. I'm just, I'm fascinated. <laughs> right. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, I have another question. Do you have another question, Allison? Go ahead. Okay, so if somebody were interested, let's say we're amateurs, we're, we love the paranormal, we want to be investigators or researchers, what advice would you give to somebody if they're looking to get into this kind of work? That's a great question. What I would recommend right now, uh, so Daryl and, and I are, are currently working on developing an introduction to parapsychology course. Um, which we're hoping to launch later this fall. And uh, we're going to try and offer it a little bit lower than most places offer it. Um, they range anywhere from 199 to, I've seen it like 399. And we're hoping to offer for roughly $100. And it's going to be the same quality, if not better. Just to start, just to start out, it's a lot more work designing a course than I thought. <laughs> um, you know, I've taken many of them and they always seem, you know, oh, this would be easy, right? Couple PowerPoint slides and this and that, but there's a lot of research that goes into it, uh, especially when you're trying to provide like the best, the newest and the most factual information. So you can always stay tuned on ppri.net to see if we have that course available. But in the meantime, I always recommend the Ryan Education Center uh, is probably one of the most reputable places to take courses from. And they offer all kinds of different courses. They actually have like a field investigators course, an advanced field investigators course, EVP and uh, intra trans communication device course. So you can talk about the technology that's used in the paranormal. They do uh, for the people that are hardcore like myself. Um, they have a research parapsychological research methodologies course that basically prepares you on, and gets you thinking like how to run a research project. And right now I'm actually taking an ethics course uh, from them. It's a four-week ethic course talking about um, ethics in field investigations, ethics in research, and also ethics when dealing with the media. When you start dealing with the media, they may try and persuade you to do stuff on camera that is for entertainment value. There's kind of a ethical dilemma, I guess, you know, uh, when you start getting into that field. So that that's definitely the biggest advice is that I would off, offer people to try and look for reputable courses to, to kind of learn about it rather than watching TV and just kind of going by that. Because again, there is a lot of misinformation out there. So if you want to do it right and properly, you can take these courses. They're not extremely expensive, you know, and, and they're great. And also the networking as well, because you get to meet people from all over. You, like there's, geez, I've met people that are doctors that have taken these courses, like medical doctors that have taken these courses. I've met other law enforcement people that have actually given me stories from my books. And you just you network and, uh, and networking is, is one of the most important things about courses and conferences and things like that. So that's probably my biggest piece of advice. That's excellent. Thank you. That's a, that's a great piece of advice. And is the deep fake technology is awful, but there's also really amazing things that technology does like make networking with all of these people across the world possible. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and like a lot of these courses are being taught on, um, on, on zoom and if you can't make the live session uh they always post the recording afterwards so if time constraints if you, you know like i've got a 14 month old daughter so i know sometimes you know things can be challenging but that's the beauty of, of these things uh they post the recordings and you can watch it at your own time and do your discussion question and your midterm and your exams and any papers or whatever kind of at your own time yeah it's 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 very flexible if anyone's kind of interested in that yeah, that sounds awesome. We should do one, Sarah. Um, okay. <laughs> I 
Let me get when through. When we're done with school, it'll have to be next. You finish year. being a nurse. I'll finish my certification. Then we'll then we'll jump into our paranormal uh, careers. Investigation. <laughs> awesome. Uh, remind us again about your website. Yeah, so uh, people can find us at ppri.net. And again, that's got my biography on it. It's got um, who our team is. It's got a you know photograph of everyone that's on our team. It's got our purpose, our ethics. Um, it's got books that Daryl and I have written. Yeah, it's got even a resource uh, section to other reputable organizations. And I always tell people that too, like don't just take you know, what I'm saying, like, if anyone's interested in the Eleanor Sedgwick work that she did to, to find out about hauntings, like, give it a Google, go to the Society for Psychical Research website and pull, pull up the information for yourself, right? Um, you know, don't, don't just take my word for it. I, I check with other experts and, and talk to other people in the field. I, if you get somebody that's kind of defensive about that, then, you know, that's kind of a red flag, right? So, I mean... You know, I, I'm always learning new stuff too. I haven't taken paranormal course um, yet that I haven't learned something new or been updated on something. So uh, an ever evolving field, especially when we've got scientists and, and people investigating stuff that we don't really understand. Um, there's always new studies and, and new things being identified. So awesome. And we'll, we'll check out your podcast too. I'm interested for your next episode with the demonologist. That'll be super awesome. Yeah, I think that one would be interesting. Um, our first one was just kind of an introduction uh, to Daryl and I. Our second one, we had Lloyd Auerbach on there, and we talked about poltergeists. And then, uh, yeah, episode three, we'll be uh, speaking to a demonologist. Well, thank, well you. thank you so much. Sorry, Allison, I just wanted to say thank you. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Thanks for being on our podcast. It was so awesome. It's so interesting. Well, thanks for having me. And I uh, really, really enjoyed uh, talking to you guys about it. Well, thank you again. I'm just like, I'm just so excited. I feel like I have tons of research I'm going to do over the weekend. So thank you again, Elliot, for being here. We'll have to have you back on after you write your next book or something. Yeah, for sure. I'd love that. Yeah. Awesome. I'm hoping it's out late fall here. Uh, I just uh, gave the manuscript to the editor. So uh, yeah, it. Uh, I'd be more than happy to come back. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And just good luck with all of your research and your investigations and all things paranormal. Awesome. Sounds great. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at the number two girls and a campfire.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook. I just got us on Twitter, but I don't post a lot. If you like us, go rate, review, subscribe, and we'll see you around the campfire.